Hello, and welcome to the Inside Writing Podcast. I am your host, Josh Sippy. As a reminder, all of these episodes are recorded live Wednesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern time. You can sign up on the Gotham Writers website for free. Now then, on to the show. Today, we're talking with Albert Samaha. Albert is an investigative journalist, inequality editor at BuzzFeed News, and author of two books. His second book, Conception and Immigrant Families Fortunes, for which he received a Whiting Foundation Creative Nonfiction Grant, is a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in Autobiography. And his first book, Never Ran, Never Will, Boyhood and Football in a Changing American Inner City, was winner of the New York Society Library's 2019 Hornblower Award, a finalist for the 2019 Penn ESPN Literary Sports Writing Award, and adapted into the Netflix docuseries, We Are the Brooklyn Saints. Albert, hello. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So we're going to start the conversation with your breaking in point, and then we'll scale back from there. So, you know, you've had a lot of milestones on your writing journey. Like I said, you're on your second book. You've won a ton of awards. You've got a Netflix docuseries. Your journalism has made some real world impacts. What do you feel like was the breaking in point where you felt like you were really doing it as a writer? I mean, I think the fundamental inflection point was when I started getting paid a salary. You know, there's a point at which you go from being a, 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 an aspiring writer to someone who is able to at least pay the rent um, with your writing. So it was my first job in St. Louis. Um, I, I was coming from uh, journalism school. Um, I, I got hired for this fellowship um, to work for the Riverfront Times and Alt Weekly in St. Louis um, and felt like moved into my first apartment. You know, it had like no furniture other than like a few folding chairs and an air mattress. Um, but I was paying my $500 Missouri rent, uh, making 36 grand a year um, with health, health insurance. And that was like the, the fundamental, I've literally made it point, but it really is like a, a steady climb, I think, because there are like other points where I'll be like, oh, no, I, now I've made it or now I've made it. Like I remember two jobs later, um, I met the Village Voice in New York um, and it was like a paper I'd always wanted to work for. Um, and I remember one night coming back from an interview, like getting off the subway downtown and just seeing the skyline and the buildings. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm a I'm, I'm a writer for the Village Voice in New York City. I've really made it now, you know, even though I was like you know, barely making, uh, I was making like 45 grand a year at the time. Nobody knew my name. Um, and that was sort of the next moment. So there are those stages every couple of years where I sort of felt like I'd, I'd leveled up and I was at a different stage in my career. Um, and hopefully those continue to happen. Um, but the very first one was when I was actually getting paid to write. That, I didn't know you're from St. Louis. I was born and raised in St. Louis as well. So I, I probably in, inadvertently found some of your articles at some point. <laughs> um, yeah. So you're talking about these different stepping up moments. Do you feel like as a writer, you change in those moments where you realize you're on that next level? Or do you feel like, you know, the, the fabric of who you are as a writer remains the same? The, the change happens before those moments. Hmm. I think it's the change that leads to those moments. I think one of the things that has helped me a lot in my career was being able to sort of continue to evolve not just my, my writing style and reporting ability, but my sort of vision for what my dream job was, what kind of writing I wanted to do. You know, I, I came in as a sports writer. I did a lot of profiles of, of, of hip hop artists and, and, and athletes, um, sometimes political figures. They were largely profiles. They were very feature-based. And then at my next job, that was in St. Louis, at my next job at the San Francisco Weekly, um, that's when I started getting into the criminal justice beat. And I had a bit more of an accountability angle to my story. And then when I when I get to the Village Voice, I sort of pare down a lot of the purple prose that I had had previously. 
when I get to BuzzFeed, I sharpen my um, sense of, of, of how to reach an audience and, and, and what sort of story angles are worth the giving a national platform when there's an infinite amount of injustices to cover. Um, and then as I wrote my books, you know, I, I, I sort of applied all of the tools I developed to that point into each of those projects. Um, and then eventually became a, a kind of a hardcore investigative reporter spending 12 to 18 months on a story and really burrowing in. Um, and, and so I think all of those sort of points of change of, over the time, I, I shifted to some essays for a period and personal family memoir type stuff. And so I think those changes all sort of fueled the level up periods because they, they sort of allowed me to continually reevaluate, you know, am I doing one, the work I want to do to work that audiences and employers are valuing um, and three that work that, that, that can kind of get me to where I want the next stage of my career to be. Um, so I think that's when the change happens. And I think by the time I would realize I've leveled up, I'm kind of the same person I was the day before, but it was really like the three to five years previous where I, where I changed and evolved as a writer. A lot, a lot I want to get back to there, but I want to ask you going all the way back to when you really first started writing, what was it that you were trying to accomplish? Because you keep, you mentioned you were in sports and you're writing essays. You write a lot of different things. So when you first set out, what was it that you told yourself you wanted to accomplish with your writing? You know, I have a lot of like um, um, really like high-minded answers to that question. But I think the, the fundamental answer is I wanted to write beautiful stories. You know, I, like I came in as a feature writer, you know, as a narrative writer. Um, I grew up reading Sports Illustrated, like Gary Smith type stuff. Big fan of Joan Didion. I, I grew up in California, so like big fan of her work and a lot of the new journalist era stuff. So I was really into the creative aspect of, of nonfiction, of journalism. And it took me a, a few years before I sort of began to develop a, sort, a, a deeper purpose, where I didn't just want to write beautiful stories. I mean, I got into journalism because I, I wanted to write about underrepresented communities that 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 were around me that I didn't see represented enough or properly represented. So there was sort of that 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 ambition sort of was rooted in a seed of, of wanting to give representation, wanting to give voice to people who who I knew, but no one else was giving a voice to. So there, that was always there. But, you know, I think like a lot of people, you know, I got into writing for like an egotistical reason is that I, I wanted my voice to be heard and I wanted to be the one to tell those stories of other people. And I think, but a few years into my career, once I started to see the impact my stories can have and the reach it could have, I started to mature my my motivations and realize, well, I don't if I'm if people are going to read my story, if I can reach millions of people with a story done right, let me not waste that. Let me write about things that can have a real impact on the world, that can change laws, that can shift the discourse in, in a in a positive direction, um, that could get wrongdoers fired from from high level positions. Those sort of um, um, modes of impact soon began to define my, my motivations. Now, when I first come into a project, I still want to write a beautiful narrative. But one of the fundamental questions I'll ask myself at the start is what is the capacity for change that my story can engender? You know, is this an idea that I'm revealing that's new and will outrage people into uh, sparking change? Or is this something people already know about and that I'm just sort of spinning my wheels and repeating things other people have reported um, because that's not going to, you know, reporting like something that other writing, something other people have already written, isn't going to change things because people have already read the last thing. Um, and, and so I, I think so much of it is, is finding the next thing, finding things people don't know that, that, that are so um, stunning or outrageous um, that, that it has to turn heads. So you can't look away from it. 
you answered a lot of my follow-ups. The key word that you keep mentioning is impact. And that's what I wanted to talk about was, you know, you're, you know, all writing has an impact, but what your writing does, your, your writing has like immediate real world consequences and impact right away. How do, how do you, what made you sort of go that route? You mentioned there was a point where you realized there was a deeper meaning to your writing or deeper motivation. Was there a moment where you realized you had that power as a writer to do that? Yeah, it was a series of moments. It was shortly after I got to BuzzFeed, but from like 2015 to 2018, I had like three big stories that had tangible impact, right? So the, and it's sort of grown where like the first was I did the story about this um, narcotics unit in Mississippi that was basically rounding up college students for minor drug possessions and coercing them into working as confidential informants to testify against their friends and not letting them talk to lawyers and all that. Um, broke the news on that. And the, the head of that unit ultimately resigned um, after the story came out under pressure. And that was kind of my first taste of, oh, this, this, this can actually change things in the real world. And then later that year, I wrote a story about a, a man uh, who claimed to be wrongfully convicted. There was strong evidence for it. Someone else, for example, had, had confessed to the crime um, before taking it back um, shortly after, um, wrote about that case. And that story um, ultimately reached the eyes of two people that came forward as witnesses. Um, and he, he was appealing his case. Um, and the, the part of the appeal cited my story, cited, you know, information I had gotten about other people who, who, who may have been involved in crime um, and, and the role the police department may have played in, in, in keeping the truth hidden. Um, and, and he gets released from prison. So at that point, that was like, you know, um, I'd never, I mean, you sort of imagine those sort of things happening, but by that point I'd written enough stories that I thought should lead to impact that didn't lead to any impact that I, I, I tried to like keep my expectations tempered. And then the, the third story in the series or in this kind of period uh, was the story I wrote about this 18 year old woman in, in Brooklyn who was raped by two um, uh, police officers on duty uh, in, their, in their police car. And the officers claimed that the sex was consensual, um, even though it was she was in their custody. And um, from that, like, idea of a story of reporting on this case, I discovered that 35 states um, basically uh, will allow a, a police officer to say that it was consensual sex with someone in their custody. And we reported that. So we reported the story of this case, but also, you know, I read through all 50 state statutes. I did a whole legal analysis and we were the first to report that this loophole is what it became called, existed in 35 states. Um, after, in the months following, uh, six states ended up changing their laws. And in about uh, three, four weeks ago, U.S. Congress just passed a bill um, citing our story, um, closing that loophole and saying there is no such thing as consensual sex with somebody in custody. Um, and that was the that was sort of the, the, the big one for me, because what that showed, like, it wasn't my story that changed laws. It was the fact that 10 million people read my story and half of them called their congressperson to say, hey, did you know this law existed? Um, because I would be getting emails from congresspeople saying, hey, I keep getting calls about this story. You know, is this true? Um, and that was kind of the story. We're like, wow, this we could really have a, a massive impact on the world, on policy, on decisions people make um, if we just shine our light in the right direction. So it was after that that third story where I, where I really shifted my gaze. And it's like, if I'm not trying to write stories that can do something like that, um, I'm wasting my platform. I'm wasting, I'm wasting everyone's time. And, I mean, these are topics that have a lot of emotional resonance to them. It, it, does that challenge you as a writer? Because I know a lot of times writers tend to separate their emotion from the story. Do you have to do that? Or do you feel like your emotion sort of helps drive the story? 
I think it helps. I think it helps drive the story. I mean, I, I always, you know, as an editor, I always tell the reporters I work with, like, write about what moves you. You know, I think if you're not excited by a subject, excited in a neutral way, not necessarily a good way or bad way, if you're not excited, if it doesn't move you, um, you're not going to put in the time and mental energy you need to do this very difficult process of reporting and writing. Um, but at the same time, I think one thing that sort of mitigated the sort of secondhand trauma um, of, you know, living my life, like talking to people about the worst moments of, of, of their experiences is that it's sort of, it's like when something wild and tragic happens in the world, you know, even if I'm not watching the news or reading the news about it, I know it has happened and it will still make me like sad and anxious about that. But by reporting on it, by kind of jumping into the center of the storm, I can at least sort of, I guess, distract myself if nothing else by finding purpose in reporting on, you know, at least to my like telling myself I can do some sort of public service, you know, like I think during um, the, the, the early pandemic months, that was like especially the case where that's how I that's it was cathartic for me to 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 just be reporting all day because it gave me something I, to do. And, and I felt like I could, you know, whether or not I was actually helping, I could tell myself I was helping. Um, and, and that that at least that helped me process um, kind of these, these, these wild moments, these chaotic moments um, that, that seem incomprehensible and, and, and tend to you know, paralyze us. Um, having that duty to, to report on the news, I think it would, what's kind of, that keeps me going during those periods. How do you know when a story, like I, I imagine you get an idea and you go after the story. How do you know when the story has the legs to carry it from like, cause you always have to think about your audience, right? How do you know when a story is worth pursuing to that degree? Cause you mentioned some of these take 12, 18 months to really go through. How do you, how can you tell the good ones? Like the ones that will carry an audience, I should say. Well, you know, I, I'm, I get it wrong all the time. You know, I don't know if I can, you know, I think I, I, I try to, I try to simplify it for myself this way um, where, you know, I, I don't think of myself or any of my colleagues as like competing with the New York times or the New Yorker but with like Instagram and Netflix. And like, we now exist in this like attention economy, whereas like 30 years ago, you know, the, the, your magazine comes, you know, to your house, you sit, you paid for it already. So you're going to sit down by the fireplace because there's nothing on the three channels you have on TV and you're going to read it like cover to cover. Right. Versus now, especially for me at Buzzfeed, my articles only exist online. You're one click away from YouTube where the entirety of human experience is like available at your fingertips. Right. How am I supposed to compete with that? And that's what I try. I, I, I think about it as like from, from like a tactical, like sentence to sentence perspective, it's like, I, every sentence is the sentence where I could lose a reader. And so I have to, I can't take it for granted. I can't waste any, any words because I have to keep you hooked from a like broader narrative story ideation perspective. I think it's much harder and it, it requires lots of long conversations with, with editors. It requires reading everything on the subject and seeing, am I just repeating things because I haven't read everything that's been written? And I think it's finding how am I advancing the story? Like, am I, what, what new information, what new insights am I providing for people? Like if, if in this crowded attention ecos, you know, ecosystem, what am, I, what am I giving them for their time? Especially if it's a long story, if it's like five, 6,000 words, it's almost an hour of reading, you know, is this going to be an hour? They're, they might spend a, a whole hour each week reading the news. Is this where they're going to spend their hour? 
Um, and like how to apply that into like actual story ideas, I'm still figuring it out. You know, I don't think there's like guidelines, right? But I think it starts with respecting the audience and thinking, you know, what do I read? Where do I spend my time? What am I bored by reading? What am I hungry to read? And 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 keeping your my ears open to like all my friends in non-media who like, what are they talking about? What are the things that are interesting them? Um, and I think so much of it is just like staying humble to the fact that I don't know um, the direction that a story should go. And, and similarly staying like open-eyed, open-eared and, and just sort of absorbing everything around me and trying to project as best as I possibly can. Is this something that's going to resonate? Is this something that's going to move people uh, and be worth their time? And I hate to even ask this, but I have to. Are, are there negative repercussions to this side of writing? Because I mean, like, if you write a fantasy novel, people may question your magic system. But if you, you're writing about actual bad policies, actual bad people, is there pushback on these kinds of things? I imagine there is. Yeah, I mean, I think any, I think any principle is problematic when pushed to the extreme and, or when used as a, a disproportionate metric of success. So, I mean... I mean, look, man, it, the reality that there, we, there need to be boring stories written. You know what I mean? Like someone needs to report on like what Amazon's earning statement said yesterday with like a 500 word story for the morning. Like that, that work has to be done, you know? So it's, it's not to say that, that those sort, that sort of journalism shouldn't exist. It's just that I don't want to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's that I, I want my stories to be interesting. You know, I've done like I, I've done many boring stories that I had to do, you know, um, and and I think for a lot of people, maybe it's not boring. But 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 for me, it's not. So I think I think the, the pitfalls that I try to avoid are am I I think when you're when you do think when you do think too audience minded, you can sort of end up chasing the rabbits that everyone else is chasing. Right. Like it's the same audience everyone else is going for. And there are moments like that where it's like, dang, all like five major media outlets in America have the exact same day two story or like week two story on this issue. Right. So like, I'll find myself sometimes like when I'm covering a big event, uh, like when I was covering um, the unrest in Baltimore in 2015, every national reporter in the country was on the ground and everyone was in the same intersection where there was the burnt down CVS and there was a circle of protesters with drums and then there was the, like the line of TV cameras. And I was like, my editors were having me chase the same story. The New York Times editors were trying to chase, right? You're trying to get an interview with the police officers involved. You're trying to get an interview with Freddie Gray's family. And you're trying to get interviews with like the people that lived in the community where like you grew up, right? And they're all the same stories. And, and sometimes in those moments, I would think to myself, man, like the ultimate public service would be if all of us news organizations conspired together and said, okay, New York Times, you do the police story, Washington Post, you do the Sandtown story, BuzzFeed, you know, you talk to the grocery worker that saw, you know, uh, Freddie Gray before he died, and and sort of dividing the resources. Because I do think that's sort of, in a, in a shrinking journalism e ecosystem, we're covering less ground no matter what. And so I think it's important for us to, to think about, like, how are we making sure we're covering each amount of, of ground as possible? And I think when you're too audience minded, you can lose sight of the ground that no one's covering. Um, and, and I think that could be difficult. And I think we need a balanced media ecosystem where there are still like doing, people are doing Pulitzer Prize winning public service stories that might not get a lot of readership, but will still make impact. Um, 
and there's sort of a place for all sorts of journalism. And, and I think the, the, the challenging part in our careers is to figure out, well, where do I fit into that? What's the stuff I want to do? What's the stuff people will pay me to do? Um, and, 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 and what does that sort of look like? It sounds like a very high octane job. I mean, it sounds like you're, you're kind of part writer, part detective. I mean, you're not just writing the story, you're discovering the story, you're digging it up. How do you, especially with a lot of these things, they seem time sensitive too. Do you set boundaries for yourself for like how, like I can only work this many hours today? Cause it feels like something that you could just go at for days at a time without even taking a break. How, how does your work, like how, do you set boundaries for yourself or do you just kind of work until it, until you burn out? Still working on that. Um, <laughs> I think boundaries are important. I think the challenge with, with reporting is that, and is that there's sort of an infinite amount of tasks ahead of you and there's, you're not going to get them all done in one day. So it's kind of, you can do as many as you want until you collapse, or you could set a boundary and do it till then and like move on to the next. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not great at that. You know, I work late into the nights. Um, I do try to like, you know, work hard, play hard type thing, at least where it's like, I'll, I'll take days off. Um, but I do, I mean, I do love the work and I, and I do well, like when I am working late, it's not that I feel pressure from my bosses or anything to do that. It's just that there's nothing I'd rather be doing that evening than, you know, going through these like court documents or like writing this draft. Um, so I think like I, 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 there are moments I'll feel myself burning out and I'll catch that and I'll, I'll slow it down. Um, and I think the important thing is just sort of knowing yourself and, and making sure that like the, 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 the hard work and the extra hours are coming from the right reasons because you want to do it and because you're excited about it. Um, so I'll, I'll work until as long as I'm excited about something. And then once I feel like I'm winding down or I'm, I'm, I'm sort of going through the motions and no longer excited reading the court documents, then that's when I know it's time to, it's time to take a break. But I, I, I actually, I don't think that's good advice. I think what I want, what I aspire to do is to be like, you know what, 8 PM, I'm not going to work past 8 PM unless there's like extenuating circumstances. Let me like reset the mind and start fresh tomorrow. I want to shift gears a bit now and talk about your books because you have two books out. One just came out, Conception, and then the one before that, Never Ran, Never Will. Um, so as the segue, I, you know, how have you, how is the writing of the books different from the writing of the investigative journalism? How, how, how have your approaches to those two changed or how, how are they different? You have to sustain the narrative, mm -hmm. um, which, which, is, which is tough. You know, I think I sort of came in thinking the challenge would be similar to just writing like eight stories in a year and, you know, that sort of same thing, but the different, like the, the sort of challenge is to have a narrative with enough beats to sustain momentum through 300 pages versus like a single investigative or feature story. You just need the one beat. You need the care. You need one interesting thing to happen to the character. And that can make for a very interesting story. Whereas for a book length, you need a series of, 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 you know, a dozen interesting things to happen to that character. Um, at the same time, you don't, you, you want to find uh, big picture, you know, context sections that, that relate to the character, but don't slow down the momentum. There's just so many more pieces in the air that, that you have to juggle, but that's to me, the fun challenge of it is that there's uh, an, like, I think there's, I've probably like of my, I don't know, 60 to 70 long form stories I've written. You could probably template it out to like, I've probably written them under like 
seven or eight different templates, right? If you like really structured out what the four to six sections look like, you know, lead, background, you know, scene, whatever. Um, But with a book, it it feels like there's an infinite amount of templates and it just feels like there's so many more creative lanes you can go down. And I think that that's what's really fun of it for me is that it's a new challenge, right? Like I've written 60 plus feature stories, but I've written two books. So like when I, when I, when I, when I was writing my third feature story back in like 2011, I didn't know a third, you know, a, 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 a fraction of what I know today. And I was still sort of learning that process. So I think part of the challenge is that you, you gain experience by seeing more and more types of problems. So over the course of my decade of writing feature stories, I feel like I've encountered 90% of the problems I'll probably ever encounter. And I, and I have different tools to address those, but with a book now I'm sort of going into a cave without sight. And I'm encountering problems I don't even know the shape of and I hadn't prepared for. And that was the fundamental challenge was not knowing the the hurdles and the setbacks because I've been through it so few times and different books pose different challenges. So it still feels like exploring new territory. And I think that's the hardest part is solving problems that you've never encountered before. So with both of these, did you know they were going to be books from the start or, or did you sort of conceptualize them as just a story that you were going to write regularly and then realize there's a lot more here than I thought? Um, for the first one, I mean, by the time I started reporting the first one, I had been like looking for a book. Like I had another, I had a book idea when I was in St. Louis that I had started working on for a few months and then um, had to drop when I, when I got a job in San Francisco. And ever since then, I'd been sort of looking for a book idea keeping my eyes open for it. And then when I got to the Village Voice in New York, um, the, the sort of story the, the book ended up being had started uh, as, as, a, as a feature story. And I was probably like two weeks into reporting it when I realized like, oh, there's actually more here than one story um, is, is, can, can, can tell. Um, and that's when I was probably, yeah, I was like, I hadn't even filed the draft yet, but I knew I started taking notes for the book because I knew I was going to want to stay on this story for a few years. Um, so that one sort of evolved organically that way. Uh, for the second book, um, I, I knew immediately. I, I just filed a draft of my first book and I was starting to brainstorm ideas for second book. And I knew at some point in my life, I wanted to write about my family. And it just felt like the right moment. I, I just turned the age. My mom had turned when she came to the Philippines. Um, you know, our family was dealing with some uh, financial struggles. And it, it felt like the right moment for me to, to tell my family story. Um, like, you know, while, while, you know, the, the enough of like more, most of the elders were still alive. And, and um, so I knew that was a book from the start. And that was like an idea for a book. I, I sort of held in the back of my mind for a while that around the time I finished my first book, um, it sort of came to the forefront and it, it felt like, okay, I think I'm ready to, to tell this story. Um, and, and I think that's, probably how I, how I tend to think of it. Like I'm, I'm always looking for book ideas. It's my favorite form. And like, as long as they pay me to write them, I'd love to keep writing them. Um, but yeah, that's so they sort of came from different, um, different uh, seats. Was it easier a second time with your second book? Was there more pressure? I mean, cause your first book won a ton of awards. It was nominated for tons of things. It's a Netflix docu-series. Was there more pressure on you the second time to sort of live up to those same standards? No, way less, way less, man. Um, <laughs> cause the thing about the first book is like, there's, there's, there's the pressure of, you know, what if I die the day the book comes, the day after the book comes out, right? There's this, there's this like idea of I, this needs to be my opus. This needs to be, it's like you hear about a band's first album where it's like, 
It's like 20 years of experience baked into one album. And that's why, you know, you'll have a lot of like sophomore slumps, right? Because they didn't have any more ideas in the time since. And it was like kind of like that for the first book. Where I think with for the first book, it was just I was at the plate and just really wanted to hit a home run. And I feel like you talk to any baseball player, like when you really want to hit a home run, you're, you're less likely to hit a home run. Um, and, and that was a challenge. It was a challenge of ego where it was like, I, I need this to be the best thing ever because what if I never write another book? I would need this to win every award. I'd, you know, be a New York Times number one bestseller. And the sort of um, the consequence of that was that I don't think I was able to fully appreciate the positives that, 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 that I achieved from that book. Cause I wasn't thinking about the awards I won. I was thinking more about the awards I didn't win, you know, the books I didn't sell. And it's like, I ate myself up in ways that I find uncharacteristic for myself. I'm usually a pretty positive person. And I found myself in like, a I had gotten all these good things, but I found myself disappointed and despairing. And it took me like three months after the book came out to check myself and be like, let's not focus on the things I didn't get. Let's focus on the things I did get. And so this second book, um, I was much more relaxed and much more able to just enjoy the process because I'd had the first book in my system, right? I proved to the world that I knew how to write and publish a book. And like that was checked off. And with the second one, I felt free. I felt I could just tell the story. I could tell it the way. The, and, and the success of the first book with like Netflix stuff and the award stuff gave me like not just confidence to really experiment with the second book, but like a little more leverage where I knew that that like I could I, I was like, OK, well, apparently I'm like like I'm decent enough at this to get all that good stuff from the first book. Maybe I could really push myself and, and try new things and not just stay in my comfort zone, but experiment with form, experiment with style and really make it the book I want it to be. Um, so I actually think the first book took a lot of pressure off the second book. Um, and, and a lot of, and I remember when I filed the, the, the draft of the second book, I just felt like immensely at peace. You know, I was, I was anxious for the reviews. I was anxious for the sales numbers, but I was just like, Oh, I, I love this book. It's everything I wanted in, in this story. Um, and I was like, I was relieved to be done, but I was just happy to be done. Um, and the sort of rollout process in the month since same thing, I was a lot more relaxed. I was able to enjoy all the positives without thinking about any of the uh, of the the things I wasn't getting. Um, and I hope that that's sort of just going to be the default mode moving forward. So I want to talk a bit about your writing process, especially with the first book, but the second one as well, because I'm always curious how writers assess their own writing, especially when they're spending so much time with it. So when you were writing that first book, were you aware that it was good? Like, obviously we all have our doubts, but were you did you have like goals in mind for it of like what you wanted it to achieve? Were you already thinking that way or were you just trying to tell the story? Um, I, I was thinking that way. Um, I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I think it's, I, I definitely like would always revise and edit my work really rigorously. And I, I try to, I try to be a student of my own work, you know, like, like, I, you know, the way athletes would watch film after a game, I'll try to go back and read old stories and see like, oh, I love the way I did that. Oh, I hated the way I did that. And so I think I, I had enough self-awareness to know like, oh, this section is a home run or, you know, or this doesn't work. I need to redo it. But then like two years later, I'll go back and I'll be like, oh, what I thought was a home run wasn't very good at all. You know, so I think even at the time, the things you think you really nailed later on as you evolve as a writer, you might, you still might, you might not feel that way anymore. Um, 
So with this last book, yeah, I still feel great about all the sections, but like get back to me in like two years and see how I feel <laughs> about a lot of the stuff. But I do think that's the joy of writing, right? The joy of writing is like, like you, 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 even if now I look back and I think a certain paragraph isn't the way I would write it now, you, that doesn't take away the joy I felt when I wrote that paragraph and was like, ah, I fucking nailed it. You know what I mean? This is the best version of me as a writer. And I think that first book, there were stretches. And even with their second book too, all the more, there are stretches where I'd be like, oh, this is the best paragraph I've ever written. And that's a really good feeling, you know? Um, so I do, I, I am pretty self-aware about that, that, that stuff, but I don't think that self-awareness is accompanied by any sort of accuracy or precision on the merits of it. I get that. Uh, so I want to talk about also at what point you got an agent because that's such a milestone for writers, especially in the book writing world. When that when that milestone is crossed, where were you as a writer when you got an agent? I imagine um, when you were an investigative journalist, were you getting attention from agents or, or when was your first sort of brush with that side of the writing world? It was while I was at the Village Voice. I got really lucky. I got really lucky. I was at the Village Voice, and one of my um, mentors, an, an old journalism school professor, had like sent me a link to an award, um, like an emerging writing writer award at the Mayborn nonfiction literary nonfiction conference, which I don't know if it still exists anymore. Um, but um, uh, but a bunch of my like colleagues would go every year. So I submit. I submit for this award. I win the award. I go to, to, to North, to, to, to Dallas to accept the award. And at the ceremony, one of the judges introduces himself and he says he's an agent, which is like, what a genius thing, like to be an agent, but to be a judge for an emerging writing award because you're meeting all these young writers with no agents. And I'm like, oh, this is how you find your clients. So he came up to me, he introduced himself. Um, and I had already started on the proposal for the first book by then. I was about halfway done with the proposal didn't have an agent when I started the proposal, just sort of like had um, friends I knew who had written books, send me their proposals. And I would try to just like copy that. Um, so I already had like a proposal in mind. Um, he, he and I worked together on it and it, 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 it took some time before we were able to sell it. Um, it was probably like another year or a year and a half before that proposal actually became a book contract. Um, and, but I sort of got lucky, you know, I, I, I stumbled, on like finding an agent and like I've been very satisfied with him like in the near decade since. Um, but there were moments, you know, especially early on when it was taking so long to sell the book where I did like consider talking about going to other agents and, and seeing like, am I just low on the food chain and, and not getting attention? Is that why it's not selling? Is it because it's not a good idea? It's not selling, you know? So there were like moments because I was so unfamiliar with the process that I didn't know whether my agent was good or not, or like, how, what are the metrics other than like the advance money you get? I wasn't sure. Like, was this normal? Was I? Was I? You know, uh, did I have an agent who was incompetent, or or is this just how the process goes? And I ultimately learned that's just how the process goes. And my agent was great, um, and it helped me that uh, a lot of I had like three or four friends. Uh, in the industry who also had him as an agent. So we were able to compare stories and, and, and sort of that uh, heartened me a lot. Um, for uh, other friends I have who, who are like looking for agents, the best advice I've heard is to get a book um, that you really like that is similar to the sort of book you want to write, go to the acknowledgements and like see who the agent is. And the agent should be mentioned pretty high. If the agent's not mentioned high, it's probably not an agent <laughs> you want to work with, right? Maybe the agent's not getting enough love. Um, but, but that's like the advice I would give is just like cold call agent. It doesn't cost them any money to meet with you. You know, like for an agent, 
that 15 minute phone call could end up leading to a million dollar book contract. Right. So like agents are down to like, hear out, read the, read the, read the pitch, read the proposal, take the call. And you really have nothing to lose and they don't really have anything to lose. Um, so it's sort, sort of worth just like cold calling, shooting the shots, reaching out to agents that feel like a good fit for, for your project. And had you started to compile, like look at agents to send your stuff to, or was that still like in the, in the distance? It was like the next step. My plan was as soon as I finished the proposal, I would do the thing I just described about looking in the back <laughs> for agents. And I was just, and I was only halfway through. So I was probably like two months away from looking for agents um, when I found my agent. And then I want to ask briefly about one other thing before we get to some audience questions. Uh, since you have won so many awards, every time I ask about awards, I feel like there's a great story attached to at least one of them. So I wonder if, if you had any awards that were like a, a big surprise or were you expecting them or, or how were you, like what was your reaction to these reward, to these awards? I mean, the, the, <laughs> I mean, it, it is short in shorts. I was happy. They're great. I was thrilled. I think like for the second, like the first book, as you read, there's like three like achievements in the clause on the first book. And then I just released the second book and I was like, fuck, I just need one thing. Cause it would look weird. If it was like, he's the author of Concepcion and never ran in for real, which did all of this. People don't be like, well, that book sounds good, but that one apparently sucked. So I was like, and I, I remember, so when I got the, um, NBCC finalist for the conception. I was like, Ooh, it was a relief. It was like, that's all I need. I just need like the one clause. So it doesn't look like I had like one good book and one shitty book, but I actually, so I, I, I actually think there was um, an actual learning experience from the first award process, which was that. Um, so my, my first book came out in September, 2018. And then I already knew, I already had the idea for the second book by then. And I already started on the, cause like in the couple months before, the book comes out, there's not like a lot to do. Um, so I shifted my energy to writing the next proposal. And I ended up selling that proposal like three or four months after that the book, the first book came out. So in like January, 2019, I sell the next book. Um, and then like three months later is when the award season rolls in. And I had realized that I, I had probably left some money on the table by not waiting like six months to sell the book, the second book. Because if I was able to say, you know, the first one uh, got got these awards. Um, I probably could have made more money on the advance for the second book. I might have been able to get more attention and got more of a bidding war for the second book. Um, and like, so I don't know. I, that's sort of the the one thing when you, when when you ask about awards, that's the first thing that comes to mind is how I sort of misplayed my hand because I hadn't really like expected to win any awards. I hadn't really like bet on myself. I was you know like. Um, so that's, that's the one thing that comes to mind is that if, if you're doing back-to-back -back books, at least wait till after award season, just in case, um, you, you, you get lucky, um, and can throw it out on your bio before you sell the next book. Gotcha. So I, I have more questions that I'll probably get back to, but let's get to some audience questions first. Uh, Albert, thank you so much. Can you describe your process of gathering your family's stories for your memoir? Yeah, it was fun, man. It was fun. You know, I don't call my aunties and uncles enough. I don't call my mom enough. This process uh, led to me calling them probably more than they wanted. Um, I'm lucky. I come from a close family. You know, I know other people that write memoirs about their families and their families are not happy about it and not supportive about it. Um, so it was, I mean, the day-to-day the, the, the -day process was really fun. 
you know, I spent time, I drink with my uncles, talk stories. Um, and the, but the thing I wanted to make sure I applied was, was, was my journalistic toolbox, you know, like both of my books involved me, you know, spending a lot of time with families and writing about the intimate moments of, of their lives and their traumas. It just so happens that the first book, it was other people's families. And for the second book, it was my family. In some ways, for me, at least my family was much easier because with someone else's family, you don't know the story as well. You know, you don't, you don't have as quite as much access to the characters. You might feel like you don't really have a right to their stories. You want to make sure you get permission from them and you want to do them justice uh, in a way that, that, that feels a lot more intimidating than when it's my family story, my story, where, where I, I, I know them well enough to know how they would feel about this chapter or that chapter or, or what they, what they would be hesitant to include in the book and things like that. So in some ways it was easier because my experience doing that intimate deep dive with other people's families um, was, was in many ways harder for me than doing, I just sort of applied that to my own family where I got more access, where I got stories I already had memories of and background information about characters. I already had a sense of their personality, of their annoyances and all, all, all this and that. Um, and, and, and so for me, I think the key was, was balancing the sort of journalistic rigor that I wanted to apply to my own family story, despite my clear participation in it, um, with sort of the acknowledgement that, that I'm a part of this and I am a character here. And I'm, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm in the scene, I'm in the ensemble cast. Um, and so it's a different voice of a narrator um, in, in that sense. But, but I guess to tie back to the original question of, of what the process is like, um, it was kind of just like, I would just, I would like schedule a bunch of calls throughout the week of like different relatives. And like, we would go, we would just talk about like a decade or so of their life for like two hours. And then we, I put in my notes, okay, we ended with uncle Bobby in 1986 and then we'd set up the next call and then we'd pick it up from 1986 and just continue, continue with going. And I would sort of weave together those interviews with other relatives. Um, and it was really fun. And I, I, you know, to learn so much, to, to realize how little I knew about a family I thought I knew well um, was a really uh, enlightening and fulfilling experience. And then this is my own follow-up to this because I get, I always, always ask this question of how do you navigate writing about family? Do you worry about how they will see themselves portrayed? I mean, I worry about how all my characters and sources see themselves, <laughs> you know, like in, in, in one sense, it's more fraught with family because those are people you have to see at Christmas every year, right. Versus sources. If the source is unhappy, you know, I, I, I'll probably just never see them again. Right. Because they'll, they'll never want to talk to me again. Family still got to talk to them. So in that sense, it was more challenging um, because, I had relationships that that I was more invested in maintaining, uh, but I also like I would I would never want a source to feel that unless it was like a wrongdoer who was the target of like an accountability investigation. But I would never want like a character source in one of my non-family stories to feel upset about how they were portrayed to begin with. So that was sort of just a, 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 an inherent part of the process for me. Next question. Hi, Albert. Kudos for the positive impact you've made for the disenfranchised and wrongfully accused. Question, and this is a two-part question, so I'm going to ask you the first part, and then we'll come back for the second part. First question, have you ever been called as a witness based on your investigative journalism findings and research? Once. It was for that wrongful conviction story. I ended up not getting called. They, they, they wanted to subpoena my notes, and the, this was, the, this was the, the, the attorney representing the incarcerated person. 
wanted to subpoena my notes because in the story, um, I, I talked to the person who would confess to the crime and he had sort of halfway confessed to me on the record. And so they wanted to speak on my notes. They wanted to have me testify. Our lawyers, just as policies, push back against anyone trying to speak on our notes. Because uh, we, we can't be like, no, we won't let the police see our notes. But sure, we'll let the lawyer for the wrongfully convicted person see our notes. Like it, it sort of, you sort of get into fraught ethical territory once you start picking and choosing who are the good guys you allow to support um, to, with your notes. So blanket rule, we don't let people see our notes. Our lawyers push back. And they end, I ended up not getting... Uh, um, subpoenaed um, and not getting called to the witness stand, but my story was like an exhibit um, as part of the as part of the case. And then the follow up question: What is your writing process when writing your books? Do you write every day same time? I wish, man. I wish. <laughs> um, I I set my schedule every day same time. What I always honestly will usually happen is I'll like set a block of time in the early morning to write, and then I'll sleep right through it and end up just writing through the night, and it creates this perpetual cycle where I my ambitions to be a morning writer are swallowed by the reality of being a nighttime writer. Um, so I, I like nowadays I sort of just. Um, I, I'm much more realistic. So I'll just be like, okay, look, I'm probably not going to wake up before eight. So let's not delude ourselves. And I'll, cause I still work my full-time day job. So like, I'll usually do reporting and editing during the day and then do my, my writing, um, in the evenings, um, or, or through the nights. Um, so it, it sort of varies. I think part of, I think one useful part of the experience of being a journalist is that it, it, it trains you to, to know how to write at any time in any settings, whether it's like in a car outside of McDonald's on election night or, you know, on the bus on your phone as you're getting back to the hotel. Um, so I've sort of used that skill to be able to um, kind of write at different times and, and, and have a more, um, a, a less structured schedule than I aspire to. Next question. Hi, Albert. Thanks for your insights. Do you have any advice for someone just starting out on their writing journey, especially about how to break into investigative journalism? Say that one more time. Uh, do you have any advice for someone just starting out on their writing journey, especially about how to break into investigative journalism? Yeah, I think I, I, I've often oscillated on whether this is good advice or not, but I'm back to thinking this is good advice. I, I, I think it's useful to develop a specialty a beat because oftentimes the way to sort of get into a world and be an expert on it is the way you get the jobs is, is like when there's an investigation, because I, what it shows, um, what it shows is that you can dive into a subject and own it and get all sorts of sourcing and, and documents and, 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 and really immerse on that beat and even if, say, you want to dive into, like, the police reporting investigative beat, right? You dive into that. And then a job opens up for, like, a, a, a corporate accountability investigative reporter. You, 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 you're not at a disadvantage, necessarily, that your experience is in criminal justice. Because what you, what you show is that, look, I know how to become a master of a subject. I know how to become an expert in a subject. So I think finding a lane that excites you where you could really exert your dominance and, and, and stand out um, and break through. So I think the, the important thing is, is finding stories that can really break through. I, I think a lot of investigative reporting that doesn't stand out reveals new information that people already kind of know, you know, 
Um, and I think the stories that stand out, it's not just that you're revealing new information, it's that you're, you're also shifting people's insights, you're adding to people's insights. So, so I would say, make sure to, to, to seek out stories where you're adding to insight and not just revealing information people already assume. And the second thing I'd say is really useful to start off um, as a local reporter at the local level, because then you could really develop your shops and you could showcase your chops where it's like, you know, you don't have to, as a young journalist, compete with like the team of Washington Post reporters investigating the FBI, right? But if you're this enterprise, you know, reporter for a local paper in Birmingham, Alabama, you have the entire Birmingham Police Department mostly to yourself. And if there is something wrong going on in that police department, you will be perfectly positioned to, to get it, right? So like you want to compete on terms um, where you can win. And, and not just try to swing for things where bigger publications are devoting way more reporters, way more resources and times than you might be able to at your job. Um, but breaking into the investigation thing, the key is just showing hiring editors that you can get scoops, that you can break news, that you can dig up documents, get information people aren't supposed to tell you. And you can do that on, sh on, on short, you know, 800 word stories that take 10 days, right? And, and it's about showing those skills and developing those skills. It doesn't have to be a three-part, 10,000-word series on, you know, the problems in, like, uh, amongst, like, uh, eviction scammers. Um, it could just be focused on, like, one eviction scammer in one city, a 1,500-word story or whatever. But it shows that you have the tools and you're developing the tools to dig up information. Next question. This one, I think, relates to whenever you mentioned how it would be great if different media covered different parts of the investigation. Have you ever thought of trying to spearhead that? Well, so it's this is tough, right? Because I'm also sort of speaking off the cuff. And I do acknowledge that, like, look, I mean, like the 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 competitive nature of news does lead to the rabbit chasing, but it also leads to really good work. So I I I I don't know if that sort of conspiratorial monopoly would necessarily be better, right? Because then, then without that sort of sense of competition, I wonder if stories will like, they'll take too long to have impact. They'll, it, it, you're also going to start to like, like get into areas of, yeah, I mean, I feel like there's some antitrust issues that like might be raised that, 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 that could like damage the journalism in the sense of, I, I do think that like, I don't know, the competition is not necessarily a bad thing. I think the competition can be bad if it rushes people and if it leads everyone down the same rabbit hole, but it can also be good in the sense of, 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 of pushing publications to dig deeper for the story and invest more in the story and hire lawyers so that they don't get sued for the story. Um, and, and so I'd be hesitant to, to, to um, like push against what that um, Pandora's box would open. But I will say, I do think there are malls in place today that we can be expanding um, that I do want to be a part of. Like BuzzFeed News, we had something called the FinCEN Files, where we partnered with 300 news organizations to go through what was like 300,000 pages of these like Treasury Department documents. That was a perfect example of like, the two reporters on that were like, this is going to take us decades to go through. We need more people on this. And so we worked with the ICIJ, ICIJ to, to um, do this collaborative effort where we worked with all these partners, right? Um, I, I've partnered um, um, with ProPublica and with The Trace to work on stories that we collaborated on. ProPublica's been really good about, they'll get a big database and then they'll invite local partners and other national partners to work with them on that, on that database. Um, I was part of a project called Documenting Hate 
that ProPublica spearheaded um, in like 2017, 2018. So these sort of models are beginning to emerge. And I would certainly love to use whatever power I have to push those further. Um, so I think I, I think the model isn't quite exactly how I described of like Times does this, Post does this, BuzzFeed does this. But I think it, it can work sort of more on the front end is when there is sort of a, a, a big um, project that 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 one newsroom doesn't have the resources to do on their own. Um, I think the ideal version of this model is national outlets partnering with local outlets because local outlets have a lot of the the, the expertise on the ground that national outlets are still catching up on. Um, and I think that could be a direction that the industry is going in a more collaborative way, is the national outlets giving support and platform to the local outlets and the local outlets providing expertise um, and institutional knowledge to the national outlets. Yeah, one more question in here. Uh, with, with it being that I, I always like to ask about writers balancing their day job with their writing, but your day job is writing. So how, how do you balance writing your books with writing your shorter pieces? Do, do you like segregate the time or do you just sort of go wherever it's taking you? Um, a, little, a little both. I mean, I, I, I try to devote time for each, each day, um, whether it's um, like blocks of time. I usually try to schedule my day in blocks of time. So I'll usually try to have a, a three or four hour block for each. And then some days, if I don't have anything to do on one, I'll just focus on the other. Um, it is tough. I mean, the time management part is still something I'm trying to improve on. Um, but it is the fundamental way to do this. I didn't go on book leave um, for the first book. And I only did like about a month of book leave for the second book. And so the rest of it was just sort of balancing the time. So I try to double dip as much as possible. Like if there are things I could report on for my day job that I, I that would later be useful to the book I'm working on. I, like I, I wrote an essay um, for BuzzFeed on, on, on Duterte when, when he was first elected in the Philippines. And while I was reporting that, I was also trying to get information for, for, the, for the book about, about Philippine immigration. Um, but mostly it is just that. It is just sort of dividing up my day and saying, in the morning I'll do this and at night um, I'll do this. Um, I find that easier than, than dividing up like the week um, because um, especially like in the news business, like day to day, it's like things can happen anytime. So it's like, if I say Thursday and Friday, I'm going to work on uh, my book and then like Thursday morning, Russia invades Ukraine. It's like, well, okay, there goes my book days. I got to jump on the news. Um, so I figured that it's more effective for me to just split the days in half. And then last question before I let you promote all the things you got to promote. Uh, if you've given us so much good advice, but if you could boil all one piece of advice to writers, what would that piece of advice be? I, I think write, um, know what your dream job looks like and write, write to your dream job. You know, like you get hired based on your portfolio, based on the work that you've already done not on like the work you say you want to do. Like I, I think sort of a, the easy sort of meta, like metaphor I give is that I think like you're coming out of school and you have a job offer to be like uh, an editorial assistant at the Wall Street Journal or like an enterprise reporter at the, you know, Aniston Sun, um, Aniston Star, which is a local um, paper in Alabama. Um, the, the platform to do the work is at the Aniston Sun, right? Like if you want to be the enterprise reporter at the Wall Street Journal, um, you're better off getting those clips at the Aniston Sun and showing those to Wall Street Journal editors as opposed to just getting your foot in the room um, and trying to wake your work your way up internally. Um, so like you, you will always get hired based on the work you've already done. So make sure the work you're doing reflects the next job 
you want. Uh, and, and then also, lab- like, go ahead. Oh, the, the other thing is like, I don't think enough people like say this, but like, this is really hard. This is a really hard thing. And there are setbacks and like, like, you know, keep your head up is my favorite song, which is why I picked it. But I also thought it's like a relevant song for the experience of, being in this business, you know, like there are like many tough days, many stormy days. Um, we don't get into this for the money. We get into it for the love, you know, but obviously we need the money to survive. So like, keep your head up and like, keep pushing. If you want to do this, if you want to make it happen, there is no deadline to like begin a writing career. You know, there's no timeline that it has to happen. And this isn't like sports where like your legs are going to go by the time you're 40. Like you could be right the rest of your life. Even if you're paying the bills with like a PR job or, or, or your dentist, um, you can always write and like, you know, just keep writing. If you love to write, just keep writing. Great stuff. And then last, but certainly not least, this is your chance to promote. Where can people find you? Are you on social media? Tell us about where, where you find your books. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on Twitter uh, at Albert Samaha. Uh, my book that just came out, Conception, An Immigrant Family's Fortunes. Um, I'm no longer ashamed to just ask people to buy it. So please buy it. It helps my cause. <laughs> I'd love to pay back my advance so I can get a bigger one on the next one. Um, uh, but that's about it. You know, uh, I got also Never End, Never Will, which is my book from 2018. Um, you know, appreciate any support on that, too. Um, the thing you realize, the, like, the longer you get into the book business is that, like, the shame you have of promoting your books just like dwindles with each book. Now I'm just like, I ah, just buy my book. I don't care if you read it, just please buy it. Um, uh, but that's about it. You know, I'm easy to Google, easy to find. Uh, my email is easy to Google. It's on my website, uh, albert.smaha.buzzfeed.com. Um, so feel free to reach out anytime. Do you have any questions? Um, really enjoyed the chat, man. Really thanks for having me. This was fun. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, to all of our listeners, uh, thank you for being here. We'll be back same time, same place next week. So we'll see you then. Thanks again. Thanks, y'all.